Hey there everybody, this is the NPC Graveyard, I am the NPC, and today we are straight from the B-side with Rose Red. Rose Red is a TV miniseries which I view as a two-part movie from the one, the only, Stephen King. Listener, this is another one of my horror favorites. I have literally watched it so many times that you can see the wear on the discs. I did see most of it when it first aired on TV in 2002. However, it is far more enjoyable in the two big chunks that came out on two DVDs. Some spoilers to follow. Let's begin. Alright, so Rose Red is a story about a haunted house. No, I should say THE haunted house. Built by a thriving businessman as a wedding, pre wedding present for his wife, the house became infamous for the amount of deaths and strange events that happened on its soil. Years after being sealed shut, a parapsychologist college professor seeks out the house's reputation to prove the existence of the paranormal. She hires a group of psychics who each have a unique gift to spend a long weekend in an attempt to get any small recordable response. The group soon finds themselves in over their heads as the house slowly comes back to life and feeds off their psychic energy. So there's a lot going on in this story. The entire movie starts off with a young girl named Annie and pretty much focuses on her for the majority of the film. Even as a child, the autistic girl displayed the kind of psychic power that most superheroes would be jealous of. She is able to do simple tricks like close doors and bend spoons with her mind. But the real trouble is that she can also freeze pipes to burst into, small, into tall ice sculptures and even ring boulders down from the sky. It's a little absurd, but this is a horror film and we have a plot to build. She's unable to properly connect with the world, which can make her powers that much more frightening. For example, she was bitten by a neighbor's dog, who was weirded out by her. The family got rid of the dog, but to Annie, the threat wasn't gone until their house was completely destroyed. Naturally, her happy family became completely detached from one another, each one scared of her, yet trying to keep her safe in their own ways. The overbearing, to the point of abusive parent, is a fairly common theme in Stephen King's works. We have two good examples in this film, with both Annie's father and Emery's mother. The two are, however, extremely different. Annie's father is the king of his household. He brings in the money, he makes the rules, and no one disrespects him. He originally doesn't want Annie anywhere near Rose Red because he knows how dangerous it would be. That doesn't mean his tough love approach got him anywhere, since Annie ultimately decided to go after almost tearing their entire house apart. Her sister, who prefers to be called sister, wanted Annie to go to help her raise money for Annie to go to school. She had warned that bringing her younger sister meant that she would probably be disowned, and from what we can tell, her parents let them both go, never looking back. Emery's mother, Mrs. Waterman, had the opposite approach. Her son stayed at home with her, renting him out for investigations such as this to bring in an income to the house. She kept a tight hold on him, so paranoid about 
whatever, that she decided to break into Rose Red just because he didn't call her on the phone. Despite the fact that she was living off of him, he always seemed to be afraid of her, not daring to even try and stop her horrifying credit card addiction. Okay, let's hit the chopping block with our large cast of characters. They each bring something to the table and also bring some kind of burden as well. We've already talked about Annie and Sister, so let's begin with Joyce, the fearless leader. She doesn't have any psychic abilities to speak of. The brains, money bags, and most knowledgeable about Rose Red history. Joyce is a scientist slash tour guide. She often talks about the house and its history in her classes. Her downfall is that not getting any proof of the paranormal will be the end of her career. She's literally bet everything on this one weekend and becomes more irritable with the less usable data she receives. Emery is postcognate, which means he can see into the past, who lives with his overbearing mother and her terrible financial decisions. Acting as the least, um, charming of the group, he is suspicious of everyone bullying him and doesn't hold one single conversation with anyone during the entire film. But after seeing what he grew up with, I would probably be an asshole too. Kathy uses automatic writing to connect with the spiritual world. In layman's terms, the Ouija board. But she doesn't like them, so she generally uses a pen and paper to connect with feelings from those living and the dead around her. Her big problem is that she is a good Christian woman, who will generally let many things happen because, you know, prayer will help. Victor is one of my favorite characters. He can see into the future, which is usually handy, except for his heart condition, which makes him look close to death's door. You know, I'm pretty sure... No, no, okay, the audio didn't kick out. Listener, I am trying to upload this like three times. For whatever glitchy reason. Anyway, <clears throat> we have Victor, who can see into the future which is usually pretty handy, except for his heart condition, which makes him look like he's close to death's door whenever he needs to medicate. Next we have Bones, I, I mean Pam, a psychic who can look into the past of an object simply by touching it. The only problem I have is that her character kind of gets turned into a, se a sex object because she's young and more attractive than Joyce and her sister. Then there's Nick, a mind reader, and easily the most enigmatic character of the group. He just sort of stays behind, making jokes and misdirecting questions until all the shit hits the fan near the end of the movie, where he explains what's been going on the entire time. Last but not least, with the main cast anyway, we have Steve Rimbauer, the last descendant of the now poor bloodline. He owns the house and is renting it to Joyce. Now, because they're sleeping together, he follows along. Sad that Joyce insists on you doing her research in his old family homestead, but is willing to do anything he can to try and protect her from the curse. One part of the movie that I like is that Steve has no psychic power whatsoever, outside of Rose Red. As the last of his bloodline, though, 
He actually has a very strong presence in the house that not even he realizes until it's too late. But what is a good ghost story without a creepy legend behind it? Like Silent Hill, the land that Rose Red was built on seemed to have its own magic. The kind that drove people into a mad rage, deep depression, or caused several fatal accidents to occur. The house was built by the eccentric John Rimbauer as a gift to his wife. They actually set off on a year-long honeymoon cruise around the world while it was erected from the ground up. Do you know that user? Listener? Whoever? Blech. Whoever's out there listening. Back in the good old days, people worked so hard for like five or ten years that they were able to take like a complete year off to just spend their absurd wealth. Kind of makes you wonder what it's like to have money, doesn't it? Anyway, I think I remember from the book that his wife, Ellen, was chosen for her looks and was lucky to catch the eye of such a wealthy man, as her jealous peers told her. Poor Ellen was mainly just a means to bear his children. God, he was such a user. Even during their honeymoon, she got some kind of illness from his countless affairs. Quote, something unspeakable carried by men and suffered by women. Her strength grew from her hatred of her husband and all men that were like him, which is probably the explanation of why men in Rose Red turned up dead and women turned up missing. Anyway, while John was enjoying his hunting trip in Africa, Ellen nearly died. She was nursed back to health by a local woman named Sukina, a woman Ellen was so appreciative to, she brought her back home as her friend under the guise of being her personal maid. Needless to say, Ellen and the house had a mutual sinister pact. As long as she continued to build upon his foundation, it would give her the safety and power that she yearned for. And so, life was mainly peaceful. The house boasted as the toast of the town, a regular spot for extravagant parties. It was only after Ellen had bore two children that the activities began to spike again. Adam and April were their names. John may have let his wife do as she liked, as she did him with his affairs, but even a chauvinist like him wasn't completely blind to the power of the house. He sent Adam away to boarding school as soon as possible, keeping him away as much as possible. Things grew even worse after April disappeared. Well, she didn't disappear really as much as the house ate her like it would soon do to so many others. John became convinced that it was Sukina, forcing her into a long, torturous police interrogation that was impossible for Ellen to stop. Things were never really the same after that, and there wasn't much peace in the house. That is, until John went spiraling out of a tower window one day. Adam and his family stayed away from the house, only tiptoeing back if they thought they could make any money from it. Doors finally closed in the old house after an elderly Ellen disappeared into its walls. Okay, let's talk about the scares in this movie. Probably the biggest example was the house itself. Once the structure became powerful enough, it no longer needed contractors and carpenters to slow it down. 
Earthroot was able to use the energy of those inside of its walls in order to expand itself. What's worse, able to change the internal structure without a sound. At one point, the group was confused as to why they had to bring a length of rope to guide them through the upstairs. They got their answer when they were backtracking, finding that the rope went through a solid wall that had erected itself right in their path. It becomes far larger on the inside, raising a victim up countless flights of stairs to disorient them from finding a way back down to the main floor. It even goes as far as to try and suck someone through a mirror. Beyond that, we have the dead whom the house have eaten. Almost like mummified vampires, the former humans can take on their old shapes in order to seduce men and charm women into walking alone into the dark halls. When Joyce gathered everyone together, she promised them all that she was only looking for a twitch of recordable energy. Like a dead frog's legs moving after shocking the nervous system. The group watched in awe as the house slowly came back to life. Beautiful things at first, like fresh flowers blooming in the garden, or a wine cellar that held tantalizing treasures opening up one morning. But they ignored the signs in order to help Joyce get her twitch, which turned into Frankenstein's monster. Soon enough, their energies had recharged the house. The doors were bolted shut, the windows immobile, and any form of glass unbreakable. They all became trapped in the stomach of a creature that was slowly draining them until there was nothing left. My favorite moment in the movie came before the group was even inside the house. The head of the psychology department was doing everything to revoke Joyce's tenure and have her dismissed from the university. He was able to achieve the first part of the plan, gloating because he was able to do it behind her back. And that's when Joyce accidentally cuts herself. Afterwards, she begins a small monologue about how blind he is, only being able to see what's on the surface of the world. All the while, she is spreading the blood on her uninjured hand before lifting it up into his face. He recoils as she explains that there is a world under the physical one, blood under the skin, and the tables are turned and he becomes a blubbering mess while stomping through a crowded hallway to clean the warm liquid off his face. On that note, one of the big subplots of the story is Joyce slowly losing her mind. Curiosity slowly boils into obsession to make the house famous again. We see scenes of Rose Red's gargoyles staring at Annie from her wind chimes. So it's clear that the power of the house, however weak, was still able to reach out into the rest of the world. Joyce was probably the best candidate for bringing in fresh meat. Once she enters the house, the one that she loved so much, things steadily took a toll for the worse. She easily became more irritable, spun off into her own little world as the house became more active, and finally lost all that was left of her composure once the bodies began to pile up. No one was able to reach her. Nick went so far as to quote her past research to show her that she was no longer the person that she used to be. Which is what happens when someone clings desperately to what they believe is their last option. 
throwing her career and nearly all of her money into the wind for one chance to do what the house made her believe what she needed to. By the end, the entire group almost turned Lord of the Flies on whether they should try to find a peaceful or violent solution to the person doing the most to help to keep the house. Doing the most to help the house keep them trapped. Uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Soda. It's not as good as clearing your throat, but I've had water try to drown me more times than soda. Soda. So the one thing that I really have to say that's bad about this movie is the length. Listeners, if you're going to watch this, and I highly recommend you watch this, be prepared for a marathon day. I actually remember going down to the common room of my college dorm once to find a group setting up relatively early in the morning. Well, early for college students. I asked what they were up to, and they said that they were going to spend the day watching Rose Red. I jumped on the couch next to them, and we all became friends. Both parts together run about 225 minutes, or just under four hours. Another issue, quote-unquote, is The Haunting from 1963. The two films had a lot of similarities. To the point that when I first watched it a few years ago, it almost became a drinking game of, did this also happen on Rose Red? But that's not really a complaint. Rent came from La Boheme, Nosferatu came from Dracula. What's important is that the remake paid proper homage to the original rather than sully it. And Rose Red certainly delivered. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. Don't feed into obsession. And welcome to the graveyard.